Cultural exchange is the most important thing that is at the root of anything that we do to try to make the world a better place. You're listening to the Better Travel Podcast, and I am your host, Paige McClanahan. Travel has been a passion of mine ever since I was a kid. But as I've gotten older and as I've learned more about the industry through my reporting, I've really started to see just how complicated travel can be. So each week, we are diving in to some of the most fascinating and complex topics when it comes to travel. And it's all with the aim of helping you, and let's be honest, helping me, learn to be a smarter, better traveler. We are here today with Season 1, Episode 7, and a fantastic conversation with Sarika Bunsel, who is the new editorial director of Afar Media, which is a pretty big player in the travel writing world, and probably best known as the publisher of Afar Magazine, which has won a bunch of awards for its writing and travel coverage. So of course, Sarika and I talked about travel writing, and she explained the really cool vision she has for Afar and the new directions she wants to take their coverage. We also talked about decolonizing travel and the ethics of some types of cultural tourism and voluntourism. So we had a fascinating conversation about travel, but it was also really fun to talk to Sarika just because she's a really cool individual. And she and her husband did something that I think a lot of people are maybe thinking about doing these days, and that is making a move abroad. So you'll hear Sarika talk about how they made the decision to leave New York and move to Kenya, where they're living now. Another really cool thing she's done is that she founded her own magazine. I mean, how cool is that? And it was that experience that actually led her to publish her very first book, which is a fascinating and beautifully written collection of essays all about ethical travel. Sarika also shares some of her travel stories, and she talks about living in Kenya and some of the trips around the country that she's taken with her family. And I gotta say, this part of the conversation really took me back because I used to live in Nairobi, and not that long ago, Just before we moved to France, my husband and I were in Kenya for almost four years, and it's such a beautiful country, such a fascinating country, and it's actually where our younger daughter was born, so it's definitely close to our hearts. So I started off by asking Sarika how she ended up moving to Kenya. So uh, I've been here for four years now, and I think that like I came here from New York City, and I think with any big move in life, there's always a bit of a push and a pull. So... um, so in my and my husband's case, I think that the push part was just living in New York City is is really nice for for some time, but you know it just it gets expensive. We lived in um, I wouldn't say a shoebox, but a jewel box. Um, it was a very cute little apartment, and uh, and we were just you know just so tired of being so feeling very cramped, and also at the time it was 2017, and U.S. politics were just everywhere in this really in this way that I think for me personally was not healthy like I just you know would spend time just scrolling through different things and reading so much online and um and it just it and it didn't actually match the work that I do which is much more international um and the work that my husband does as well um so I think that was a push that we were just like tired of being in New York City and just the atmosphere in America was just very intense and uh 
happened and the pull was that we both wanted to move back to live somewhere in the global south. We met both while we were living in India. And, um, and then at, at that time, um, his office was setting up, uh, setting up an office in Nairobi. And I was at the time, um, just starting a magazine called Bright Magazine, which I wanted to do from the global south. And we came to visit Nairobi, fell in love with it and decided that this would be our home for now. I can attest, Nairobi is a fantastic place to live. I mean, the climate and the things that you can do from the city, it's a wonderful base. Yeah, and it was also nice, like, for for me, like, running the magazine, um, which was all about, uh, you know, different parts of of global development, from global health to education to gender. Um, There's so many people here who are doing a lot of different entrepreneurial things, and... uh, and there's a, there was just like a really nice community of people that I started meeting when getting here too. Fantastic. Yeah. So tell me more about the magazine and where did the idea for that come from? And yeah, what kind of topics were you covering? Was travel part of that from the beginning? Yeah. So, uh, so the magazine was born out of before that I was at Medium and I ran two social impact publications there. And, uh, one, one was first on education and then the second one was about, um, about global health essentially. And, and then I got some funding to pretty much continue them and I decided to merge them and to add a couple of other topics to it so that it would be really just kind of well-rounded around, you know, just, just talking about a lot of global development issues, but really trying to do it with, um, like what was important to me was to have a solutions orientation to be really vibrant, um, both in terms of the writing as well as the art, because I think sometimes a lot of the art for global development stuff is very stale, very NGO-y, and I wanted to just move away from that. And, um, and also would just be really fresh and provocative, um, but not in a way that was just outrightly mean, but in a way that would actually get people thinking and make people a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, in a productive kind of way. So that was the, that was the idea for the magazine. And, uh, so yeah, so travel wasn't officially part of it, but we realized that it was kind of infused in so many of the things that, that you do because so much of global development does mean people from two different worlds meeting. And in the case of development, there's often this like linear idea of, the person from the global south is bettered by someone who's coming from Europe or the U.S. or you know the West, quote unquote, and coming to make their lives better. And you know there is that really that cultural tension that happens, and that always really bothered me. Um, that idea that it does need to be this linear because that's just not how the world works. It really also doesn't acknowledge um, everything that someone who is from Kenya or from India or wherever they're from, um, the what they what what wisdom they have, and it doesn't acknowledge like you know just the what kind of cultural exchange can actually happen. Um, so we started exploring it in different ways, like you know we have um, articles about study abroad and the idea of volunteerism and all sorts of things like that that really started getting a lot of traction, and then. About a few months before we ended up closing the magazine, we decided to launch a crowdfunding effort for it. And um, at the time, we were just like, oh, let's just, you know, maybe let's just make a book out of everything that we've done. That'll be fun. Um, not thinking about the immense effort that goes that goes behind it. And when we started talking about topics for what it could be, um, 
travel almost immediately came to my mind because I think that the idea of showing up to a new place and what is the quality of how you arrive in a new place and how do you both handle yourself and how do you um, interact with all of the people that you meet. I think it has just been something that's just been in the back of my head since I was very small, actually. So, uh, so yeah, so that's, that was the genesis of the book, Tread Brightly. Yeah, well, fantastic. It's a fantastic book. It's really interesting and a wonderful collection of essays from lots of different voices and covering lots of different topics. And yeah, I would love to ask you about a couple of the essays. Well, you contributed a couple of essays in the, in the foreword to the book. And I was really struck by your openness and talking about your own experiences with volunteerism, you know, how you've kind of been reflecting on that as you've learned more about the travel industry and thought more about these issues. So I wonder, could you talk a little bit about your own experiences with volunteering abroad when you were younger and then how that has informed your thinking and writing about those issues now? So I grew up in the U.S. and my family is from India and we visited India every few years. And um, if you've ever been to India before, there's the rich and poor live very close to each other. And um, and in my grandparents' neighborhood, that was definitely the case uh, where we would be based from. And And I think that that idea of just seeing people who are in a very different station in life than you are and just you know that being part of your reality was it was part of me from a very very young age and uh and my grandparents had a very strong tradition of volunteering as well um you know i remember when i was 8 years old going to a school and helping to feed 500 kids who were the same age as i was and uh and so and i think that those experiences sort of just shaped who I have become and uh, and the types of values that I hope to live with. Um, when I got to college, I wanted to use that spirit in a lot of in, in ways that would just make the world a better place. And I think there's a lot of young people like that who just have these ideas of like, you know, I want to use the privilege that I have and 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 use it for good and use it to help make people's lives better. And and I think that throughout the book, like when I talk about volunteering and the idea of being a volunteerist, that I really want to come from that idea that a lot of people, I mean, of course, there, there are many people who have this like, you know, unhealthy savior mentality about it. But I think for many people, it actually comes from a very pure kind of place. And and then it's just about like, how do you channel that intention in a way that, that doesn't harm others and that actually you know, even if that young person doesn't have that many hard skills to impart on other communities, that there there's at least something good that comes out of it. Um, so I reflected in the in the forward about how you know there's everyone has like stumbling blocks that they that they go through, and I think that it's great that the world is just can be forgiving enough um, that, you know, you can just make like small mistakes, you know, um, throughout and just, you know, asking stupid questions or just showing up to a place and just, 
you know, with this like hero kind of mentality of like, I can do it all and, um, and not really, you know, just talking more than you listen. And, uh, you know, even like when I, when I went to Costa Rica with Habitat for Humanity when I was 19, like going to a salon and getting braids done and like, you know, just all of this kind of like very classic sort of stuff. Um, but you know, I was really lucky to have generous teachers and to also just be, you know, I journaled a ton and to just like, you know, as a way to reflect on my experiences. And I feel like all of those things just helped me grow up. Um, so I feel very fortunate in that way. Yeah, yeah, certainly. And I think, like you're saying, so many people do come at it with only the best intentions. I mean, I had a couple of experiences as a volunteerist when I was like 17 and just after college. And um, yeah, in retrospect, I look back on that and I feel like I was maybe a little bit naive um, about what I was doing and what I could contribute. But I think you make the point in either the forward or the article you, you wrote about volunteerism about first, do no harm. And that should be, you know, your kind of guiding mantra or, you know, guiding principle in looking for a volunteering project overseas. I also like the point that you made about um, the woman who asked her potential volunteers to think about an imaginary group of people coming from Mongolia. Could you explain that? Yeah, I love that. It was just, uh, I, I think that the idea of an education kind of perspective shifting is often so useful. And I think that's a really great example of it. So essentially, this woman who uh, who trains uh, potential volunteers, she, before they they go to whatever place they're going to, she asks, she does a few exercises with them. And one of them was, uh, imagine that you had a bunch of students from Mongolia coming to the US, and they're coming for two weeks, and they want to come and solve gun reform issues. And they don't speak any English, and they don't have any prior experience in doing so. So what what do you do with them? And of course, everyone just laughs. And they're like, Obviously, that's not, they're not going to do anything. And, um, and I think that there's just this perception that, you know, it has been helped by so many decades of international agencies kind of telling you that, you know, Africa can, can use your help, that, um, that the opposite can happen, that you can go, uh, that you can go to Burkina Faso and solve malnutrition in two weeks, if, even if you don't speak the language or know anything about the culture or anything about nutrition. Um, and so, but then what she does is she actually takes it a step further and, in addition to, you know, people just laughing and seeing how ridiculous that is, she's like, okay, no, I want you to actually design a program for them. And what's a program that will help them actually feel like they've done something by the end of these two weeks that they're here? And I think it just helps people realize that maybe the most you can expect out of two weeks is just a greater understanding of the issue and, you know, just like the very old cliche of like, you have two ears and one mouth. So, you know, maybe just use, <laughs> just try to listen when you go to a new place, especially if you don't know the culture. And, uh, and she said that, 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 that perspective shifting exercises helped a lot of her students just arrive in a new place with a bit more humility and a bit more understanding of how complex some of these issues are. You also write really beautifully about the power of human connection and how travel can inspire that. And, you know, I really love what you say about the importance of going into a travel experience with the sense of being on the same plane as the people that you're visiting and having an exchange 
that's a genuine human interaction in which you, the traveler, actually are offering something up and not just sort of extracting something from the community. I wonder if you could talk a bit about your the essay on exoticism. I love the example you gave about your visit to Thailand. Yeah, I loved writing that essay. So it's called Close Encounters of the Exotic Kind. And it's about exactly that, like the uh, the meeting of someone who is from a very different culture and in many cases who is dressed in ways that are reflective of that culture and uh, and how I think there's just such a spectrum from gawking and extracting to appreciating to actually actively participating. And then there's definitely things in between there as well. And so, you know, just where along that that spectrum do you want to be? And at different points in time, you're going to be at different places. But how do you just move away from the actively gawking as much as possible is essentially, I think, the the core message of that story. So, uh, so yeah, so I talked about this experience um, maybe like seven, eight years ago in Thailand uh, when we visited this community that has, um, that they wear a lot of gold rings around their necks. Essentially, they start when they're very small, the women, they start when they're very small with a few rings. And over time, their shoulders become depressed down and then they wear more and more rings. So over time, by the time they're adults, they have this, it's almost an illusion of having a very long neck covered with golden rings. And uh, and so it does, it looks really fantastical, you know, when you, when you see them. You know, we arrived kind of against our will. Like we didn't even know that we were going there. It was on a part of this like three or four day trek around the region and all of a sudden we like show up at this village that it was you know you pay a ticket as an entry and then it's then you enter this place where people live um so that the whole thing felt very weird and disneyland-ish anyway so we entered this village of uh where these cayenne people lived and uh so i I learned later on that they're from myanmar and were brought to thailand and uh, essentially cannot work and cannot earn money and they are stuck in this village as almost just objects for foreigners to come and i remember there were some other people who were there from other groups who just had you know their their big nikon cameras and they're just walking up to these people and just taking pictures without asking for a photo um without anything you know just it's just they were just almost like animals essentially or um you know you you can imagine like a freak show in the 1800s where you would just like walk up to the bearded lady and gawk at her and um and it was it was almost it felt like that and it just made me so uncomfortable and i remember then just going up to this woman and her daughter and um we had our guide with with us who could be an interpreter and just actually starting to have a conversation and she was so surprised, um, which I felt so bad. I'm like, this is the very bare minimum. I'm like, why are you surprised that I want to have a conversation with you? Um, I'm not saying this to make myself sound holier than thou, but this is just what happened at the time. And I just started asking the daughter, like, you know, oh, what subjects do you like in school? I mean, like really basic things. And she's like, oh, I like math. Um, and it was, uh, you know, after a while, I'm like, oh, do you mind if I take a photo? And then she said yes, but it felt like it was after I talked about who I was a little bit too um, and just kind of had a bit of a back and forth at least. But it made me very, very uncomfortable just seeing how it was the the entire setup was there so that 
these people knew that their place in life was to just be objects to be photographed. And the tourists weren't expected to even make the bare minimum of hi-hello kind of conversation with them. Wow. Wow. I mean, that's such a, I think it's such a fascinating topic and something certainly that we see in other parts of the world with, especially with indigenous cultures. I mean, even I remember going to the Polynesian Cultural Center on Oahu. I don't know. Have you ever? Yeah, you're nodding. I think the first I went there the first time I went to Hawaii and I think I was 21 and you're walking around and it's sort of like a Disneyland where here you're in Samoa, here you're in, Tung, um, you know, here you're in Fiji, here you're in the Hawaiian Islands and seeing you kind of um, seeing displays or performances of, of cultures in a way that felt very odd. You also write in the essay about the Maasai communities and how they're maybe taking a different approach to that type of exchange. Yeah, and it's not perfect, right? I, I don't want to make it sound like they're the answer and they've figured it out. But many Maasai communities own that tourism for themselves. And they're the ones who create it's not like I think in the Cayenne community felt very much the opposite, where it was someone who was not from that community who was controlling the exchange of money and how everything happened. But in many Maasai communities, it actually is Maasai people who run the business. And they are, they've create these villages that are, you know, some of them are like legitimate villages where many people live. And, um, but they create these spaces that are intended for tourists, but they do it themselves. So it feels like the um, having the ownership and the money be part of, be from the community means that they have more of a say in how they get their community to be displayed. Yeah, I mean, that seems to be a really big difference. You know, if it's the community setting the terms of the exchange and then also collecting the benefits or, you know, receiving the financial benefits of that exchange, then, yeah, maybe it maybe it's still kind of playing on some power and privilege dynamics there, but at least they're the ones who are calling the shots. And if they wanted to stop, then, you know, they could stop it if they wanted to. Yeah, yeah. And actually, to make a quick plug for, uh, for Afar, they, uh, there's a, we have a uh, podcast called Travel Tales. And there's a recent episode that that talks about a Maori community that actually functions in exactly in New Zealand that functions in that exact same way where uh, they're the ones who are calling the shots and uh, and bringing tourists in at their own accord. Fantastic. Well, I will definitely find that, listen to it, and then I'll put the link in the show notes so people can check that out. And that is the perfect transition because I wanted to ask you next about your new job, your new position as the editorial director for Afar Media. So congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> I wanted to ask, actually, what inspired you to apply for that position? Or I wonder, you know, when you saw that job posting, what appealed to you about it? Yeah, so so they actually found the book. Uh, so far is like many travel publications, COVID was very difficult for them. And I think that any sort of crisis is an opportunity. And I think for them, they used it as an opportunity to really double down on this idea that travel is a force for good. And, you know, and in all of the very broad ranging ways that you can interpret that. And, uh, and so when they found the book, I think that the book spoke to so many of the themes that they're looking to hit. Also, they really liked the fact that the book is not 
just it doesn't just drag you down with how difficult the world is, but also it comes with a sense of levity and joy and vibrancy that's always so, so important to me when doing anything journalistically, but especially when you're talking about travel, like, you know, it's it's such a joy to be able to see this wild and wondrous world that we are so fortunate to live in. And, uh, and so, yeah, so, uh, so they invited me to apply for the role and, and it was, I mean, a pretty intense, uh, intense application process, which ended up being really good for me because I hadn't thought of myself at all as a travel writer. Um, I was someone who did, you know, very important things like education and health and gender and <laughs> development stuff. And that's what I've been doing my whole life. Um, but I started thinking about like, well, what drew me to this topic for the book, For the, first of all? And it was this idea that you mentioned before of cultural exchange, that that is the most important thing that is at the root of anything that we do to try to make the world a better place. And when I think about like my, you know, why I came into journalism in the first place, it was that idea of just trying to bring help interpret very different worlds for people so that we could see each other as human beings and who all deserve to live with uh with you know the most dignity possible and uh and and I think that travel has been the vehicle for me that's allowed me to do that and and I feel like if I can help through uh through helping direct the editorial coverage of the magazine um help other people also arrive in new places and similarly, just arrive with that humility and just with that open mindedness and, and open heart also to new experiences and new people that that in some ways does much more good than a lot of the development work that I was doing, um, or at least just as much good um, if, you, if I don't want to quantify it. But yeah, so that that's essentially what drew me to the role. Well, that's fantastic. So not only did you get the job, you were headhunted for the job. I am very impressed. <laughs> Hi there. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Sarika Bunsel. We'll have more from her in just a minute. But right now, we're going to take a quick break for a little language lesson. So this week, I got to learn a couple of phrases in Arabic, which was a lot of fun. I don't speak Arabic at all. My language teacher this time was Zina Bencek who is the Managing Director for Europe, the Middle East, and Africa for Intrepid Travel, a global tour operator based in Australia. But Zina is Moroccan, and she grew up speaking both Arabic and French. So she picked out a few phrases in Arabic that she thought I should know. Two things that really are things we say a lot in, in Morocco, but I would say other, other Arabic countries that are really just reflective to how people in these countries are. One is Mashi Mushkin. Mashi mushkil. There is no problem. Mashi mushkil. There is a big problem, but say mashi mushkil, there is no problem. Because if you ask for something to someone and you just say, can I get this? Or could you do that for me as a work? Or they say mashi mushkil, you need to double check a couple of times because it's just very, how people are so positive about everything. They will never tell you no. They will always say mashi mushkil. Okay. So can you help me the, the first? Mashi. Mashi. Mushkil. Mushkil. Mashi mushkil. Mashi mushkil. Yes. It means like no problem. No worries. It's like the Australian no worries, you know? And it's the, the difference with Australian no worries is that it doesn't mean that there is no worries. <laughs> it could mean that there is a big problem still, but that's how people just are relaxed about life in, in, in my country. And it's just 
nothing is a problem. And I'm sure you know about this one, but it is also one that we use a lot. In Morocco, but I would say most of the you know, Muslim countries, we're so relaxed about the future, about destiny, about life, about, you know, in a way, inshallah, you know, inshallah, that's a very important one for us. Because interestingly, as I worked a lot with foreigners, especially in my time in Morocco, and for them, inshallah, doesn't mean that it will be done as well. Because when you say something to a Moroccan like, can you take, uh, can you do this work? They say, yeah, inshallah, it doesn't mean it will be done. <laughs> I use it sometimes for fun if we talk about something that we really don't know if it's going to happen. I say, inshallah, inshallah. <laughs> yeah, 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 inshallah. Yeah, so that means literally God willing, is that right? Yeah, God willing, exactly. God willing. Yeah, I know my husband spent some time in Saudi Arabia and Lebanon as a child with his parents. And inshallah, I learned that from him. It's something that his family sort of says, you know, I think they, they picked it up during that time. and. Um, yeah, he, he says it too when it's like, oh, yeah, well, maybe we could do that next week. But like, hmm, yeah, inshallah, like not really sure if, if that's going to happen. <laughs> inshallah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, there you go. A few phrases in Arabic for you. It was so much fun to speak with Zina. I hope you'll come back next week to hear our full conversation. We talked about vaccine equity, climate change and travel, and the new opportunities that tourism has opened up for women in her home country of Morocco. So look out for that next Thursday. But for now, let's get back to my conversation with Sarika Bunsel. I, I can really relate to what you're saying about coming from a background doing journalism on other things, you know, you mentioned, I think, health and economic issues. And and I've struggled with the same thing a little bit. You know, I think it took me a little while to arrive at the realization that travel really is something that's not just kind of a frou-frou, um, light, you know, lightweight topic. It really is something that merits serious scrutiny, you know, serious writing, but also you know, it's so important to hold on to that element of joy and fascination and wonder that you talked about so beautifully too. So, yeah. I, I think that there's just this perception of travel writing, uh, which I definitely have this stereotype of, oh, you know, you just go to a fancy hotel and you write about the thread count of the sheets and then you, you know, you go wine tasting and you talk about like, you know, the quality of the champagne and there you go. That's it. And it's just like the finest things in life for people with way too much money. And it's, that's all it is. And, you know, like there's an element of it that is that, which is, but that's also, I don't know why, why do we have, why would I look down, like why look down on that? That's a part of the human existence. That's, you know, the part of the human condition. That's part of are, uh, you know, what we enjoy in life. Uh, but also, like, everything is travel. You know, every time you walk out your front door, you are traveling, you are showing up into the world. And where you are is exotic for someone else in the world. I mean, I hate that word exotic. But, like, you know, it's, it's, it's something totally new and totally different for someone else somewhere out there. Um, and it's just about the perspective and the mindset that you have as you, uh, as you, ex as you exist and walk through the world. Um, can you do that with curiosity? Can you do that with, uh, with just, you know, that, that desire to learn what's going on around you? And how do you just bring that mindset into your everyday life? Fantastic. Fantastic. So now that you're with Afar, 
yeah, what do you want to do? I mean, what do you want to take the organization in new directions? Or how do you see yourself kind of taking that mindset and that beautiful sort of approach to travel that you were just articulating and make that work in a magazine or on your digital channels? So one of the things that attracted me to Afar is that when you look at the product already, it's something that is already just so beautiful and the writing is already just so incredible. And um, so it's not like I'm just coming in and just making something from scratch. It's just taking what's already there. There's so much immense talent on the team and the different writers and photographers and illustrators that they use. So it's just, you know, taking what's already there, this beautiful base, and then just trying to go even higher with it, essentially. Um, so I would love to bring Afar, the magazine, more into doing more multimedia work, like um into podcasts, into videos, maybe into, you know, other different forms of storytelling and just making it multidimensional so that you can really feel like you're part of a place. Uh, I want to bring in other forms of the idea of, you know, the idea is that, you know, you you experience a place and that you read something about you you read a story or you you listen to a story or you watch something and then you feel you feel that that longing inside of you that I want to be there and I, I, this sounds so beautiful. What do you do to just get people to have that kind of reaction? Um, and to me, part of it is just, you know, just thinking about the number one, the quality of the, of the writing, which is already so high. Um, but just, you know, working with people to, uh, to just refine it even further. Um, it's also thinking about like, you know, using different forms of storytelling. Like, um, I would love to bring in some like short story and poet and poetry writers to uh to or poets I should say um to come in and uh and just you know describe their worlds um and their and their way that they experience the world um and yeah and then I think also just thinking about travel for everybody you know and just like inter- it's like coming back to the idea of perspective like thinking about travel for like you know thinking about like diversity within the travel industry like um, what does it mean to travel if you're in a wheelchair? What does it mean to travel um, as a person as a person of color going to different places that maybe you know aren't meant for you in some ways? And how do you navigate those experiences? And really just helping people um, empathize with others through through that experience. Um, so so yeah. So essentially, I want to just draw on those notes of using travel as a force for helping everyone just have like even just 5% more of an open mind as they as they travel through the world. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm really looking forward to seeing what changes you bring to Afar. I've been a subscriber to the magazine for a little while now, and I can attest that it's beautiful. It's just a gorgeous sort of work of art, really, the print magazine. Um, so I'm sure, yeah, like you say, you're starting with a really excellent product already, and it'll be cool to see what you do with it. Yeah, I'm I'm so excited. <laughs> and do you have any other travel plans in Kenya now? Are you um, hoping to get out? I think COVID numbers are pretty calm at the moment. Yeah, so, um, you know, figuring it out, I think that it's just it's such a hard time to make travel plans in general. Uh, my my family and I, we love to go camping and to explore different parts of the country that way. Um, to just, you know, 
driving our car and bringing our tent and, uh, you know, and stove and food and stuff like that and just going to new directions. So, um, so we did this amazing road trip a couple of years ago to the north of Kenya. And, uh, and actually, we were even supposed to go further than we did. But then we got to this one very small town called Ngurunit. And uh, there was all these people there, like these families that were from other parts of the north uh, that were visiting their families in Ngurunit. And we ended up just um, meeting a bunch of the kids there. Uh, so there was like this whole group of kids, like ranging from like eight to 15 or something. And we ended up just uh, hanging out with them. <laughs> and uh, we went like on a day hike with them. We were playing football together. Um, I ended up learning a lot about... Um, the the sort of peer pressure that girls have around female genital cutting um, at the age of you know fourteen fifteen is when it usually starts and um, but just you know how it's like you know girls anywhere have peer pressure for things and just what that looks like in this particular cultural scenario and we didn't end up making it further than we were than we were supposed to because we just uh ended up with the cool kid gang that we were <laughs> we became really close friends with so definitely want to like go back to the north and maybe make it to lake turkana or other places well that's fantastic I, and i think it's really cool too to just share the the idea that it's possible to explore an east african country like kenya with a tent and a car and you know to do safaris that aren't like a thousand dollar a night kind of yeah to me that's part of also just like I realize like doing a couple of those safari experiences which are amazing I don't want to like take anything away but they're very much like the colonial hangover fantasy I mean even the idea of like the big five that like oh we have to go find the big five like the lion the elephant the buffalo etc that that all came from, you know, people who are hunting big game um, in the colonial era. And there's just like the whole aesthetic of how many of these lodges are set up. And the way that you interact with the staff at these places is very much reminiscent of the colonial times. And then, you know, you walk into many of these lodges and then there's just you know, all the staff will be Kenyan, but then there's always like the British or Kenyan, you know, the, the white Kenyan family who's just like sitting at the helm and then they're there to greet you to make you feel comfortable. Um, because, you know, if there's a black person greeting you, then you wouldn't feel like you're someone, anyone's really in charge. And it just like those dynamics just make me feel so uncomfortable. So, um, so yeah, so discovered that like a lot of these parks, there are places that you can hire a ranger and you can camp. Um, pretty safely. I mean, you should pee before you go in your tent because you don't want to get out in the middle of the night, ideally. <laughs> but, um, but you can, you know, like we were in um, the this one national park, Savo West, and, you know, we camped in the park. And um, it was like, and we could hear animals in the distance. And it was such a way to be so much, feel like you're really just part of these magnificent landscapes that the and then just think about the fact that the Kenyan government is the one that has preserved these huge beautiful tracts of land and kind of it it feels like a way to almost decolonize the entire safari experience to do it more in this DIY piecemeal kind of way so like in addition to it not being a thousand dollars a night I feel like it it just feels like a a much less, um, I don't have that kind of icky feeling. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And then, 
you know, you get to drive your own safari vehicle, you know, your own car. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we just have a RAV4. It's not even like a, you know, we don't have some like huge Prado or Land Rover or anything. But it can get you pretty far on a lot of these roads. I mean, there's some places that, you know, depending on the time of year, especially if it's like rained a lot, like you don't want to get stuck in the mud. But um, but you can go a lot farther by yourself than you think you can. Yeah, for sure. I we went camping in Hell's Gate National Park and had this beautiful campsite, maybe you know it, that's sort of up on the edge of the cliffs and you park there and set up your tent and then you just have this beautiful view over the Rift Valley below. But yeah, I remember um, being in the tent at night and hearing like something and thinking, is that a hyena? Is that a, a lost buffalo? You know, but anyway, we were fine. It just adds a little bit of extra adrenaline <laughs> to the experience. Yeah. As I said, if anyone who's listening ever wants to do it, just, just pee before you go in your tent at night. That's all. That's, that's my only piece of advice. There you go. All right. Well, fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Sarika. This has been a wonderful interview. And I really have enjoyed the chance to have a little um, mental escape you know, mental trip back to Nairobi and Kenya. So yeah, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed talking to you as well. Hey there, welcome back. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Sarika. It was so much fun to talk to her. And if you'd like to learn more about Afar, you can check out the link in the show notes. I've also included a link to the book of essays that Sarika edited, which is called Tread Brightly, Notes on Ethical Travel. I've also included the link to Afar's really cool Travel Tales podcast, and specifically the episode about a Maori village that she mentioned. So it's been just over a month since we launched the Better Travel podcast, and I have to say that I'm so thrilled with how things are going so far. We have listeners in more than 30 countries across Europe, Africa, Asia, Australia, and North and South America. So wherever you are right now, thank you so much for joining me here. It means a lot to me to be part of this community with you. But before I say goodbye for this week, I have a question for you. My producer and I are just now planning out our episodes for season two, which will launch in January. We have some really cool ideas that I'm so excited about, including some out-of-the-box stuff, which is going to be a lot of fun to do, I think. But we still have a few more slots to fill, and I would love to hear what you guys would like me to explore on the show. So if you have an idea or a question or a suggestion head on over to bettertravelpodcast.com, click on say hello, and you can leave me a voice message. I'll also put a link to the voice messaging system in the show notes so you can just scroll down and you'll find it there. I would love to hear from you. And of course, I will respond. I promise I will send you a voice message back. Thank you so much to everyone who has already gotten in touch. I am loving hearing your ideas. So when I told Sarika that this episode was going to go live on November 4th, she said, oh, fantastic, that's Diwali. So Diwali is a major festival for millions of Hindus, Jains, and Sikhs. And it's a festival of light that celebrates the triumph of good over evil, which is a sentiment, of course, that we can definitely get behind here on the podcast. So thank you so much for listening and a very happy Diwali to Sarika and to everyone who celebrates. You've been listening to the Better Travel Podcast, and I am your host, Paige McClanahan. 
Artemis Irvin is our producer and social media editor, and Jessica Danheiser composed our score. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next week.